0: And welcome to episode 33 of Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Secret societies and the idea that some of them still exert influence on society is often outright dismissed or serves as a point of ridicule for those who are prone to label concerns about corruption, whether legitimate or illegitimate, as conspiracy theory. However, not all secret societies are really that secretive, and some have long been relatively open about their collective influence and their collective goals. It's worth reminding ourselves from time to time that sometimes examples of the worst corruption and depravity influencing our political systems can operate for years hidden in plain sight with the Jeffrey Epstein scandal serving as just one recent example. It could be argued that few groups of this nature have been as influential while also operating relatively openly than the Fabian Society. While much has recently been said about World Economic Forum Chairman Klaus Schwab and his assertions that his organization has succeeded in penetrating, his words, cabinets around the world via the Forum's Young Global Leaders Program, this is a model that has been used and perfected by the Fabians and other groups as well for well over a century. In an effort to examine how other organizations, aside from the World Economic Forum, have sought to penetrate governments and nudge policies in their favored directions, often at the people's expense, the Fabian Society is well worth exploring, as they have definitively shaped major policies as well as many prominent and powerful political parties within the Anglo-American empire and beyond. Joining me today to discuss the Fabian Society, their influence on Western imperialism and other policies, as well as how this group has informed our present situation, is Matthew Errett. Matthew is the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review, a contributor to the media outlet Strategic Culture, and a senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He is also the author of the books The Untold History of Canada and Clash of the Two Americas. Thanks for joining me today, Matthew. How's it going?
1: Hey, I'm very glad to be on. I'm doing well. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. So, well, uh, before we go back in history, uh, a century or two or so, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about current events first, since you are a Canadian living in Canada. And even though all eyes are now on the Ukraine-Russia conflict, not that long ago, uh, Canada was dominating the headlines uh, due to the Freedom Convoy uh, or the truckers, however you want to refer to them, and the Justin Trudeau-led government crackdown on that protest. So can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in Canada right now and what impact uh, you think the Freedom Convoy uh, has had on life in Canada, both in the short and in the longer term.
1: Yes, most certainly. And, um, you know, since we're talking about the global situation, indeed, um, there's different terms that have been used to label the the Freedom Convoy different things. As you said, truckers, Freedom Convoy, if you were Christia Freeland or Justin Trudeau, uh, you'd call them Nazis and white supremacists. Um, Of course, this was ironic because Christia Freeland was just uh, found to have posted a picture of herself. I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, Leading a march uh, for a free Ukraine against the Russian uh, supervillains of the earth, where she was holding a black and red um, flag associated with the worst, most virulent forms of uh, neo-Nazism of the Ukrainian uh, nationalist movement, um, which he had to then take down 12 hours after it was posted. Um, But this is, (laughs) you know, (laughs) a complete uh, irony, uh, which I, I a lot of these technocrats are just completely incapable, I think, of self reflect upon the irony of Trudeau having like bounced around his blackface um, or Christia Freeland having met with Andrei Perubi, the, uh, you know, one of the top neo-Nazis who ran the Ukrainian parliament after the U.S.-led coup and came to Canada and did like photo ops with Freeland with Trudeau uh, to arrange arms deals. And even Christia Freeland's own glorification of her grandfather, who mm-hmm. ran the leading uh, newspaper, Michael Chomiak, who le- led the leading newspaper in Ukraine during uh, the World War II, that you know promoted Goebbels' propaganda and rounded up Poles and Jews for extermination uh, during that time, um, which is proven completely. So there's a complete lack of ability to recognize irony, um, which human beings have. Endowed within us, this self-reflective ability to crit- criticize our folly. These guys don't have that.
0: Some of us, uh <laughs> yeah. I think uh, being a politician uh, on the level with people like Trudeau and and Freeland requires uh, eliminating that and your conscience <laughs> in the process. Absolutely. Maybe. <laughs> no, I meant
1: I meant the word, the term humans in the best of terms, not not what these things are. <laughs> oh, okay. As, as little bored, <laughs> bored <born> creatures <laughs> who have something severed from within them. At some point early on, I don't know when exactly that happens. I'm sure as children, as as babies and toddlers, they had that that potential to be really good people. But somewhere along the way, it's crushed. Um, But all that to say, yeah, the the, this was really in the top of people's radar for the past month until the Ukraine thing blew up. And I think that, um, you know, what I've encountered is. Two extremes that I think are, are wrong in approaching the wake of the Freedom Convoy. On the one hand, you have many people who have noticed that a lot of the mandates across Canada are being repealed, um, pretty much a lot along the lines of what was being demanded by the thousands of people who I I mean I spent a day there. I had to see it with my own eyes because I'm not used to anything uh revolutionary in an organic way arising in Canada, British controlled Canada. It's it's a, a zone of of intelligence operations, and it always has been so it was very difficult for me to actually believe that this there was anything genuine in this originally i'll i'll be honest but i you know after going there spending the day talking to a lot of people filming things doing my own research um i came to the conclusion that yes there's something very organic um that was there it was a, a very beautiful process a uh, very peaceful and I know that there is a lot. There, like people write to me and they say, "Oh, but you know that there were intelligence operations uh, within organizers of the money raising operation, and or you know the fact that there was a certain type of psyop um, trying to paint the blockades that were just were used to justify the ultimate emergency measures Act that you know turned this thing violent and justified a a violent clampdown um, to break." The 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 thousands of people who had camped out in front of the parliament for weeks, and it's like, yeah, there was no actual connection between the blockades and the actual Ottawa convoy. And I know that there were intelligence operations there, but there was something else. So on the one hand, uh, I was saying that there were two different reactions that I disagree with. One hand, people there were people who say it was all a a big fake, um, just to distract us while they were doing other things that involved passing anti-hate legislation that's being rammed through with Bill C-36 to, you know, broaden the definition of what hate speech is um, in a very dangerous way, or, you know, ramming through or advancing the, the momentum towards digital currencies. And yeah, these are things which are happening too. But at the same time, other people, I, I would also say it's not like that it's all bad in the sense that it wasn't all fully controlled because there was a victory. Indeed. And some people say, oh, we were victorious. We can go back to sleep now. We won. Um, that's wrong. Just because mandates are being lifted. That's that's a false other extreme, too. But I think that this became something more than the the oligarchs themselves who are trying to manage this shit show. It became something more than they realized it wasn't. And, and you know, thousands and thousands of people all over Canada flocked um, in to, to give their support to this thing. Even now, there are thousands of people who I've I've seen pictures on, on social media videos of people lining up on the side of streets. Uh, there are still people converging in the parliament uh, or in front of the parliament um, and across various provinces just to express their disdain towards the dictatorial turn that Canada has more overtly taken. So that's still going on. And obviously, there's also the parallel uh, people's convoy in the U.S., um, which is, I think, something like 70 miles long as it has just arrived in Washington. I don't know where that's going to go, but it's definitely something that has created um, reverberations for the good. Um, like, for example, the fact that you have had a coup d'etat inside of the Canadian Conservative Party, that was unexpected. You know, the the actual the former head of it, Aaron O'Toole, was sounding far too much like a world economic forum freak. And he had an, an internal coup where he was ousted and the, you know, the conditions upon which the new um, leader of the conservatives will be voted will be based upon their the intensity to which they reject the mandates but also the world economic form broader narrative uh, which is quite quite good so for the first time in a lot of years we actually seem to have signs of a real opposition that I never saw in in years and years I haven't seen anything of a real opposition within Canada like I said it's a very controlled environment um, you also have a, a variety of other things too on the provincial level um, a former premier, uh, Brian Peckford, is taking uh, the government to court over the uh, abrogation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And this guy is not just anybody. He was the former premier of Nova Scotia, but he's also one, the last living architect of the, ch- the Charter of Rights and Freedoms passed into, into law in 1982. Um, so he's, you know, it, it's a pretty big thing to have a person of that stature who's actually capable of um, speaking eloquently and with a strategic thinking, um, in play. So that's, those are good things. But like you said, there, there is a broader, uh, process happening that goes far beyond North America and, and has to deal, I think, with the breakdown the controlled, uh, blowout of the financial system, um, concentrated mostly in the transatlantic community, which is a giant bubble. Like we used to have an economy uh, many decades ago, that had some viability to it, but increasingly since the early '70s, our economy has been turned into a giant illusory speculative uh, bubble. And like all bubbles in physics, they can really—you can only blow them to a certain point before the physical boundary conditions are too much to hold the air within the bubble, and it and it pops. And financial bubbles are the same—the same thing. Since the days of the tulip bubble of the 17th century, um, all the way to the present, there's been lots of bank runs, panics. Speculative bubbles, and they've always been used as instruments of economic warfare by the City of London. It's not a new thing, although the scope and scale of it today, with global derivatives being what they are, you know, something like 20 or 30 times more than the global GDP, it's a bigger bubble. We've got a lot more people in, you know, amounting to almost 8 billion. That's popping. Like that, that's that's a lot of people. We've never had that many people. So um the suffering the danger of suffering and pain is going to be a lot greater if it's not handled properly um and then there's the fight over what will be the operating system of this of the new system that will be brought online and uh, i think that's where we sort of sort of get into um the conditions around what is the broader geostrategic thinking from those um world economic forum associated technocrats who also tend to overlap with nato the atlantic council and all of these other think tanks over their fear of losing control during the context of the crisis that they themselves provoked um, to the, well, you know, a bunch of the countries of the world don't want to sacrifice themselves, it seems, on an altar of Gaia. Um, And so you have sort of a fight over two systems. And I think what's going on around uh, China's perimeter, uh, especially around Taiwan and the NATO of the Pacific that is being promoted, you know, or the saber rattling by uh, Shinzo Abe, in Japan, um, who's doing sort of like a a Zelensky, um, you know, in the the weeks before, or not even the week before, uh, Russia, uh, began, began their military intervention into Ukraine. Zelensky came out in Munich and said, it is time. If we can't get into NATO immediately, we're going to use our nuclear reactors and technology to develop nuclear weapons. Once again, which the Ukraine got rid of in the early nineties, uh, Japan, Shinzo Abe just, gave a speech just the other day saying that Japan has to also develop nuclear weapons and change their constitution which had forbidden the use of nuclear weapons since World War II ironically yeah. right because they actually were the only country to suffer nuclear weapons used by the United States but they've become since a US colony with 50,000 US troops currently stationed in Japan as part of a, a forward basing encirclement of China so Shinzo Abe both said that and in the same speech said that The U.S. military must defend Taiwan um, under all circumstances of Chinese uh, invasion. Now, how you can invade your own country is a a weird thing since Taiwan's own constitution recognizes that it's also a part of China as an autonomous uh, sort of province of sorts.
0: I don't know. Yeah. It seems like with this whole Ukraine thing, there's been all these whispers, too, that, oh, this has emboldened China to uh, move to Taiwan. And oh, that'll certainly get uh, make things spicier than they are <laughs> at, at present, I guess. Um, but back to Canada. So you were talking a bit about the the financial um, system to come. And uh, the last thing I want to touch on before we move to the Fabian Society is um is what was announced by Christia Freeland, who is, uh, I believe both deputy prime minister and the minister of finance of Canada, yeah. um, about yes. this, the seizure of, of personal bank accounts, uh, for people that were uh, deemed to be, uh, fundraising or, um, you know, donating, I guess in some cases, uh, to the freedom convoy. Um, uh, so what do you think uh, the consequences of, of that have been, uh, do you think people have uh, as a whole sort of lost trust in the Canadian banking system? Uh, what do you see the consequences of that uh, being, especially considering that uh, Freeland uh, announced her intention to make those measures permanent, though? I don't uh, quite know if she was successful in doing that.
1: She was not successful in doing it. That was the the strange thing, um, because <clears throat> the the utilization the 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 utilization of violence which is really i mean it was a violent crackdown when they came down on the protesters um that was justified and also i mean the breaking of all the windows of the trucks the the uh forcing uh terrible fines onto towing companies that refused to tow the trucks all of these things uh were done under the guise of the emergency powers the emergency measures act that was invoked for the third time i mean the first time in that form but It had also it had formerly been known as the War Measures Act, and it was used three times before that. Um, Now, it had it had not been made law because to be made law, you have to get it passed both in the House of Commons in British terms. That's a very uh, uh, elitist thing that's been created for Commonwealth countries. So it's the House for the commoners to have their representatives. vote. But then you also have to have it passed in the Senate which is sort of the it's not the same as the U.S. Senate in Canada or a British Commonwealth country. The Senate is kind of like the House of Lords where it's by appointment and it's by like 25 years uh, terms. So it's like a lot of job security there. <laughs> but it has <laughs> yeah. to both, it's like tenure. <laughs> yeah, kind of like tenure. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You can't really be fired unless they create scandal, um, which has happened a few times when senators have gotten a little bit too out of their uh, script and uh, too independently minded. There have been scandals created like the one that uh, destroyed the career of Max Harb. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. I don't want to get into that. But um, so it has to be passed in both houses. Now, what we found was that it was passed, though with a good deal of fight in the commons. But when it came to the Senate, we there were some incredibly interesting speeches from various senators that surprised me when I listened to them, where they basically called out the the um, the official Secrets Act because the um, the information, the intelligence being used by Canadian uh, the Anglo-Canadian intelligence agencies to justify this um, overextension of power was all kept secret. No, nothing was made public. And we were being told, oh, you just have to vote on it because our intelligence agencies are so smart and you have not been made a member of the Privy Council. And thus you have not been inducted into the um, you, you haven't taken the oath of secrecy, which is another weird thing about Canada. You know, you have oaths of secrecy uh, that you have to. Uh, by bylaw sign on to mm. if good
0: government.
1: Yeah. Sounds transparent. So Canada's free and liberal democracy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, a lot um, of people in the US, I think, uh, have had sort of that impression of Canada that it's <laughs> like a more. Uh... I don't know a uh, more utopian version of the U.S. At least I knew people uh, sort of on on the progressive side of things that sort of had that view of Canada a couple of years ago. Not now, I would hope. <laughs> you no, know, I think know. that
1: illusion has been destroyed for many. But yeah, I've known many people like that. I used to be like that too. I, you know, i I'm, a lot of especially Canadians are trained to be anti anti American and and feel a sort of sense of righteous superiority because we. Unlike the the gun loving racist Americans who, you know, have a history of bloodshed, we Canadians have been well behaved and never had to fight for our freedoms. To, and we just were wiser and knew that just by being well behaved, we would eventually get the our the freedoms from the queen. Give us, exactly. She would give us freedoms. And that's what happened. Um, it's really detached uh, from reality. But anyway, uh, there's a lot of that. But I, like you said, it's it, the illusions come off. The thing with Freeland and Trudeau, um, Trudeau had said he wanted to keep these emergency measures in play for at least two to three months. Freeland had uh, said similar things and said also that even after the emergency measures is removed, that she wanted to keep the right of having essentially deputized the big five Canadian banks and also credit unions um, that gives them the right to uh, freeze indefinitely anybody's accounts, business or personal if they've been involved with either funding the freedom convoy but you could see how that could just become anything that is display displeasing to the ruling elite um now that didn't happen as i mentioned there were some speeches where it was coming to the surface that these and nobody was really supposed to know that the information was that was being used to justify it was secret so that was they were it was getting loud and getting very uncomfortable I'll, also i think there was a lot of bank runs so they did freeze about 200 accounts they 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 Uh, jailed unlawfully uh, about the same amount of people from the Ottawa region, um, some of whom are still in in jail, like Tamara Litch. um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name, but she was a leading uh, figure within the one one of the, I think, more honest organizers within the convoy process. Uh, She's still in jail. She was not given bail. Benjamin Dichter, who was her fellow colleague controlling the money around Gibson Go and GoFundMe, Um, None of which ever, as far as I could tell, seemed to have actually made it to any of the truckers. Again, as far as I could tell, I haven't seen any any evidence that it has. Um, He was immediately given bail within minutes and basically said to his followers on Twitter that, by the way, I'm going to go take a vacation. Keep up the fight. Bye. (laughs) Whereas she is still stuck in prison. So it just shows you there. There are um, not a lot of solidarity there, I guess. No, no. And, you know, you have weird things, too. Like, um... anyway, I don't want to get too off topic. So I, I have to keep myself on track you were asking specifically about the uh, the emergency measures. So it was ultimately uh, decided that it was not that they were not going to go ahead with maintaining it. I think that they had a sense that it was going to possibly be voted down in Senate. There was a lot of fight back more than they expected and also a lot of bank runs. So a lot of people were pulling their cash. I know.
0: Yeah, I think <laughs> that's probably why, to be honest, that it didn't get made permanent. They were afraid of the, the system, like too many shocks to the system. And like you said, you know, the whole bubble uh, speculative bubble economy. I mean, that's not exclusive to Canada, obviously, but you know, um, it makes it less resilient. Obviously when there's shocks at the system and a bank run, uh, is, is shock enough. Uh, and a lot of those preceded things like the great depression, things like that, um, you know, back in the day. So it probably wouldn't have, uh, heralded, uh, I don't know that that could have created a crisis that, uh, they weren't ready to handle.
1: Yeah. It's all about timing. Um, because mm-hmm. they do want that. They want to blow the bubble out. That's been part of the agenda for a long time. Right. And I think that um, they've wanted to really, going back to even the first wave of the blowout that I would say began, it's not like the blowout is just happening now. I, I think that it it really began in earnest in 2008 with the housing market blowing out in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the whole system changed. It became a bailout system. It, and, and Different phases, having...
0: yeah. I would, yeah. I think it's exactly. been a phased controlled demolition i guess you could say
1: Mm -hmm. and it's very similar like you said to the great depression where on a certain day in in 1929 on a tuesday there was uh, a broker call all of the broker call loans were called in in a coordinated fashion where it was revealed that all the brokers doing the stock purchases using a lot of shady means and overextending their their uh themselves by getting loans they couldn't pay um all had to basically default and that chain reaction default resulted in a mass deleveraging in the in the banking system and the bubbles of the roaring 20s um just immediately you know popped and the people who were on the inside for example the the JP Morgan preferred clients list the people who had insider trading information like Prescott Bush um you know there there are very many people on that list um that became public during the trials of the nineteen thirty-three PCORC missions. Um basically they were all able to to sell before the 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 bubble popped. Um, and then they basically used their ill begotten gains to just buy up for pennies on the dollar during the Great Depression. All of the assets in real estate, agriculture, farms, industries that had formerly been right. Um, Consolidated, you know.
0: consolidating capital in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And I think well, like wealth transfers, right? Is essentially what these things are. And um, you definitely had that enter a new phase in 2008. And then you could argue pretty easily, too, that COVID 19, uh, that whole uh, affair that I guess we're still sort of in, it's hard to know (laughs) anymore, Um, you know, it was another big wealth transfer. And then uh, I would argue there's a, a final one soon to be underway when they they want to introduce the, the new system. in.
1: it's good to get into the mindset of evil. Like people have to let their minds go there to just think through the really bad, like worst case scenarios. It's something to make real because it's only this has only gotten so bad because people have been unwilling to think of the nature of evil intentions and its outcome, its effect. Um, For too long. And, you know, by ignoring this, it has like, you know, cancer just grown and overtaken so much of the host that there's very little good tissue left available to recover from. It's still there. Obviously, if you know, (laughs) if it wasn't there, we'd all already be dead. Like the, the oligarchy already would have achieved their desires a long time ago. And for me, like that's always one of the best proofs for people who get a little bit too caught up into, I think, looking at all of the points of of control of the oligarchy. Um, and I'll just say oligarchy. I know people have different terms of what that means, but I'll just say oligarchy because I think your listeners all agree there is an oligarchy and history is shaped by intentions for good and for bad. Um, but, um, if they, if they already had all of the power of controlling all sides of everything, then they, why didn't they already win? Why aren't we already dead? Right. Is it just that they were bored and they've spent a few generations just playing around because they're bored? Or is there actually something that they don't control something that is um that they're afraid of even maybe there's weak spots that Achilles heels within the oligarchical uh structures itself which have always been there that we could appreciate a little bit more um and that's my contention that there are that there are you know massive points of weakness and fear within that system which again you can sure. get a better when you take a step back and we look at history from a broader standpoint and we look at all of the points of failure where the new world order came close where they've wanted the new world order to be successful in, you know, the 1919 League of Nations. They wanted that to be the thing that replaced nation states and created a one world, supranational eugenics government. But it didn't work out that way. And they wanted it again in 1933, with their bankers conference to create a one world government, even before Hitler became like the main tool. Uh, That didn't work out. And then they tried it again, right with uh, the whole Anglo-American fascist, British fascist, Nazi machine that was going to like sort of carve up the world into these different you know areas of fascist control on behalf of a financier oligarchical elite at the top. And that didn't work out. Um, and then they tried again. So it's like if they were that successful or that powerful, they would have been more successful, I think. Um, so why did they fail? why did Why do they make these machines that tend to blow up in their own faces, too, where they were then forced forced to sort of reorganize themselves? Um, And try again in a new with maybe more virulent techniques.
0: Well, what uh, we talked about uh, just a few minutes ago, sort of like the consolidation of capital, I think, in order to realize uh, global governance the way they want to implement it. They also have to consolidate uh, more than just capital. They have to consolidate control over institutions, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think, for example, in the case of the U.S. after 9-11, they tried uh, to implement a lot of things that they, uh, couldn't succeed in implementing programs like total information awareness. Um, and there was a lot of complaints, for example, from the media about what that would mean for civil liberties. I think they also had to consolidate control over the media even further, uh, in order to sort of, um, Re, uh, realize their uh, ambitions, at least from their perspective, that they felt like they had to go back to the drawing board on some of that. Because I think a lot of people know too that consolidation in the U.S. at least uh, began, uh, got really in excessive in the in the 1980s and has continued since then. Uh, but I think they needed to felt like they needed to go after like individual. Uh, journalists to an extent and also like papers of record you know media outlets like the new york times that sort of have a global readership even though they're u.s based and stuff like Mm -hmm. that and since then you know the new york times has really just become a mouthpiece for (laughs) the state department and the cia and all these other uh, organizations so i think they also have they've been working to consolidate not just capital but control over political institutions control over uh, ngos and that whole um uh, what people like Cory Morningstar uh, call like the nonprofit industrial complex, mm. things like yeah. that, um, you know, in, in the yeah. media, um, you know, all these different sectors that they sort of feel a need to, to consolidate there. And I guess that brings us sort of to what I talked about in our introduction, uh, this effort to uh, consolidate control, I guess, over those institutions, uh, different organizations and and people with, with shared uh, goals and ambitions for global governance and other things. Uh, sort of need you know how how does that consolidation happen from the perspective of those groups, sort of this this penetration model that I, I referred to in the introduction. Uh, so mm-hmm. I guess with that, maybe we should start uh, our exploration of the Fabian society. yes,
1: yeah, so the the Fabian society itself uh, utilized just that very uh, technique as you just mentioned, uh, what was dubbed permeation theory. Um, it, to understand the Fabian society, though, I think it's important to to get at what is it and where did it come from? Um, it is something which had really shaped and distorted, along with several other key top down think tanks, uh, run out of London, the entire twentieth century. Um, and it was created at the end of the nineteenth century, which is a very important period. Now, utilizing this this method of permeation theory that had been developed by people like Lord Bertrand Russell, a leading Fabian Society member, uh, George Bernard Shaw, who's known as a a literary figure. Uh, but really was a radical, devout eugenicist. As all of these members, it's almost like a precondition for the most part. You had to have been a, a radical, devout eugenicist um, in order to be a true Fabian. Um, you know, there, there are many, many others. H.G. Wells, uh, Lord Halford Mackinder, um, many people whose ideas went on to shape the the paradigm of war and division and a brutalization of the entire 20th century, including the push for a scientific dictatorship. These were all groups that organized themselves around the Fabian society. Um, There were different branches to it. And in terms of an educational processing uh, factory that was set up in uh, the 1890s called the London School of Economics, which was sort of a a zone created by Fabians with Rothschild uh, funding. To uh, find talent around uh, the world and process them in the halls of uh, of the Fabian, you know, uh, social engineers, and then send them back either to do work in Britain itself or in other parts of the world. Um, the political party that was created in 1900 um, by the Fabians was known as the Labour Party, um, and the idea was to just simply um, do nothing less than completely uh transform the entire foundation of society under a mass behavioral modification scheme and create a new type of humanity um founded on certain ideas located in the writings of Karl Marx um which themselves repackaged a lot of the core poisonous ideas in the darwinian system of natural selection that particular model And there were many models. It's not like you have to be a Darwinian or creationist that believes literally in the Bible.
0: Okay, so this is in Marx's writings that this comes from? Because I've never really heard, I mean, I haven't like read all this stuff uh, myself. Yeah, just kind of familiar with the general stuff, but I don't really hear uh, people refer to, you know, Marx's writings as sort of having that Darwinian. A uh, flavor to it. So, which uh, can can you be a little more specific about which which bits you're talking about?
1: Yeah, sure. Like Marx uh, described on Darwinism, he said that Darwin's work is most important and suits my purpose uh, in that it provides a basis in natural science for the historical class struggle. Um, he also huh. devoted his first German edition of Discapital Kapital* to Darwin. Um, Engels, uh, who was sort of Marx's handler, I don't think Marx fully understood. Kind of like Engels was to Marx what uh, Thomas Huxley was to Darwin as Darwin's bulldog, right? His handler. Um, Engels had written that Marx was, quote, simply striving to establish the same gradual process of transformation demonstrated by Darwin in in natural history as a law in the social field. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, since the Marxist view does postulate that there are these bursts, these periodic bursts of uh, revolution between the proletariat and the uh, the the rich, you know, uh, holders of product, you know, productive enterprises. Um, I don't know if Engels was being all that honest, but the fact that these guys were all basically trying to repackage some core ideas, and the idea of the the Fabians was rather than do things the old-fashioned way, which the British Empire had been doing for. You know, I mean, it became really an empire in earnest in the, I think, the 17, early 1700s, maybe I'd, I'd say even maybe with the, the advent of the Bank of England after the Glorious Revolution, which involved sort of the deep state of, of Britain taking full control and whatever legitimate humanists and nationalists were in Britain formally were completely destroyed at the end of that process with the death of Queen Anne in uh, 1710 or 1714. But in, at that point, Britain really became the the center uh, control, you know, the the hive of this global empire where it began a process of increasing colonization, you, you know, the utilization of usury and speculation to undermine uh, its victims. And that process was destructive oftentimes because it necessitated periodic wars, um, heavy headed suppression when you had things like, for example, Indians. um, in the, the crown jewel of the empire, periodically uprising for their rights and freedoms. And then you had to have the British go down and crush them and kill millions uh, periodically just to put them back in their place. It got very messy and it was risky for the empire itself, too, because by having these wars, sometimes it risked the empire uh, losing control of the system that they were trying to manipulate or themselves getting blown up. So the Fabian society method, which grew out of a group that was associated with a, a group um called the Fellowship of the New Life. Basically another group of British elites trying to create a new religion, a new type of, it sounds kind of innocuous on the surface, you know, like they want a a world where our spirits and bodies live in harmony and uh, a new world that could supersede the uh, Judeo-Christian sort of matrix. Um, Utilizing a lot of theosophical Eastern, like a certain version of Eastern mysticism that they're fascinated by which I don't even think is legitimately Eastern. I, th- I think that they're they're perverting a lot of it. But anyway, that was sort of what uh, people like Alfred Wallace, who co-wrote uh, or was given co-writing credits for um, with Darwin, of uh, writing the, um, the Origin of Species in 1859. So he, he was a leading member of, of that group. Um, and so out of that group came the more practical political aspect, which was the Fabian Society, and it, it just uh, two years after the Fellowship of the New Life was created. And Beatrice and Sidney Webb were two among the many, as I mentioned, a few of them already, um, eugenicists and social engineers who were like, OK, let's let's get rid of this old school, heavy handed approach of overt violence to keep control of the empire. And instead, let's use something a little bit longer term. Let's let's have a longer uh, wave approach to history as we permeate slowly and cause and it will adapt ourselves and infuse ourselves into everything that has influence everywhere in the world possible and will think increasingly transgenerationally so we need to have more patience so the term fabian that they chose um, and again it was created in 1884 was uh, based on the name of a roman general named fabius uh, maximus who had developed a technique of attrition basically destroy your enemy not avoid head on assault at all costs and just simply use attrition so avoid war use intrigue and subterfuge subterfuge as much as possible cause uh you know uh, confusion within your enemy's ranks as possible but slowly by attrition when they're weak and they've used up all their their supplies then you can go and attack you could lay it down um part of one of the symbols that were crafted by george bernard shaw who i mentioned earlier was a disgusting rabid eugenicist who called for. periodically forcing everybody in the world to justify their existence under a panel of population control, like a, a population control panel of experts. Oh, my
0: God. Yeah, I, I can think of some people today who would love to institute that kind of system.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, it's a little bit too real. And when you, when you listen to the writings of, well, I mean, there's this one guy um, who is, I think, the first person, they call him Dr. Death, because um, oh, he, he was the first person to, to do nice. a. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's, <laughs> I think he actually takes pride in it, but I forget his real name. But he was the first doctor to do a legal euthanasia in Europe oh, in 1996.
0: It begins with the K, him, right? doesn't it? I can't remember it. Yeah, it's escaping uh, me too. Right there. he
1: called for this yeah. horrific idea of like implanting everybody with some poisonous chip, like that has a fluid that would kill you pretty quickly uh,
0: mm-hmm. if you
1: cannot press a button at the same time every day.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah.
1: that way, if, you're, if your neurological faculties ever like you start went, becoming
0: senile, then you just die. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, so um, these guys had this slower idea, but it didn't take off immediately. Um, so that was one sort of, you can consider it an early think tank. And the thing, and, and another think tank that was created soon thereafter was, and this is 1884, right? The, the one that was created soon thereafter in uh, 1902 with the death of Cecil Rhodes was the Roundtable Movement. Um, otherwise, it was funded by the the ill-begotten gains of Cecil Rhodes who had exploited Africa, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, um, for a long time, and uh, was a real radical race patriot. Again, uh, you like all of these Rhodesians um, of the Cecil Rhodes ilk who became controllers of his roundtable movement, like Lord Milner, uh, Leo Amory, and, and there's so many other names. I'm not going to throw a, a bunch of names to your audience here, but they were all people who, who uh, learned to be what they were as um, almost like a religious order of uh, race patriots, they were all taught their their work under the Boer War uprising, the Transvaal r- uprising that created the Boer War in, in um, the, or the Second Boer War, where the innovation of concentration camps were created that focused on targeting women and children um, to to suppress the Transvaal Republic up- uprising of the Dutch and the uh, the Zulus. So these people were really cold hearted and there were a lot of these young sociopathic men all conglomerated around Lord Milner, who they were called Milner's kindergarten. Um, I'm saying both of these things because this think tank, which then created soon um, a scholarship program um, that basically looked for young talent all over the world to be brainwashed in the halls of Oxford. So they were centered in Oxford, whereas the the Fabian Society, their school was the London School of Economics. Both schools had um, a niche. But they work together. There's a lot of overlap. And um, the idea was, again, focus on the young, focus on the next generation, and try to create a civil service that was a little bit more um, manageable. Because the old school, be- before these, these organizations were created, the British Empire had a problem where they were, they'd they overextended themselves. It was the w- a one-world government, in a sense, right? The sun never sets on the British Empire. And so this tiny little island was able to innovate a technique for many generations of controlling much of the world through very disgusting means Malthusian population control induced famines divide and conquer like all of these things were techniques of empire and it required all a huge bureaucracy and so in the 1830s 1840s 1850s you see a lot of examples of civil servants who were appointed to be governors of regions in India in uh, even in Canada and in other places who d- they don't have a stomach for the the type of blood Letting that they're expected to to induce in the victim target population, a lot of them tend to, you know, they 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 believe the Bible. <laughs> um, they believe that you should, you know they, they have consciences. So you uh, the the inner elite, the inner oligarchy, the upper level echelons, didn't have the the type of controls that they wanted to have over their civil servants, who they, you know, again would would do things like call for the emancipation of slavery. There were actual fights in the British House of Lords in the 1830s and 40s. Just simply saying, um, we should just get rid of the British Empire. We should just—it's—it's it's not viable, you know. And this is unacceptable, unacceptable to the elite. So they needed to like tighten things up a lot more. Um, so the Fabian Society had this longer-term, slow penetration approach. the The British elite around Lord Milner. Um, which was, again, a Rothschild-funded operation. The Rothschilds put a lot of money into the creation of the Rhodes Trust and the Roundtable movement. Um, They tended to take on a little bit more of an old-school, burn-the-savages approach early on. Like, Still, they didn't have the patience to do the type of evil that was needed. (laughs) Um, So what you, you tended to see was, on occasion, overlap. So... There were organizations like the Coefficients club that was, again, created by by Beatrice and Sidney Webb, the two founders of the Fabian Society. They created the Coefficients club that featured a lot of people like Lord Milner was a member. Lord uh, Leo Amory, a Maria Roundtabler was a member, even though so was Bertrand Russell, the so-called pacifist. H.G. Wells was a member. Uh, uh, Lord Balfour, the guy who created the Balfour uh, Declaration. Accords. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For uh, uh, the creation of the state of Israel for people that aren't familiar. Mm
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the theft of just all the lands of Palestine and the division up of of Palestine uh, by French and British imperialists. Mm -hmm. Um, All of these guys were all part of the inner sanctum um, of the Fabian society, um, as well as as this other thing. So like I said, there's a lot of overlap. And at one point, even just, just, I'm Canadian and and Canada was, and still is, I think, an important uh, player right now at the moment in global affairs. So I'll just say this. One thing that's of interest here is that um, Lord Mackinder quit his job in 1908 at the London School of Economics, where he was the director under uh, Beatrice Webb, appointed him. And he's the founder of modern geopolitics, as it is known today, and it is, as it is taught in Harvard and Yale and Oxford and other places, and as it is practiced since the Cold War, especially as this uh, science of geography, which all, I mean, that's the, at the heart of many of our problems, is this this quasi-science, which is not really a science. Um, that's Lord Mackinder That that you know the that the 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 great game. I'll just say a word on this because people might not appreciate this. The great game of politics is organized around the assumption that um, hegemon must always come out as the dominant singular force, and the world is run by diminishing returns of resources and a fight for those ownership of diminishing returns of space on a finite um, area of the globe, right? Um, and whoever can monopolize those resources can better induce the weaker to fight each other and stay subservient, enslaved, um, to the master Hobbesian sort of dominant, uh, class. And there is a genetic racist, uh, tinge under the surface that I think you only are allowed to discover later on after you rise in the ranks. And a lot of Fabians, I'll just say this now as well. A lot of Fabians are good people. They're not, Upper level, they don't know what the hell they're a part of, and people within the British Labour Party and a lot of the Labour parties that were created by Fabians themselves are just people who care about the justice of you know the rights of labor against exploitative enterprises. They're huh. not bad. Uh, just I got to say that as a disclaimer because I don't want to paint the whole thing as like one blob. But when you well, get to yeah. the Jesuits, you know, when you get to the upper level of the Jesuit order, there's lower level Jesuits who are really good people. They do a lot of good things, and then something happens along the way. Where you're periodically tested by your superiors. And no matter what your answers are at a certain point, as it gets weirder and weirder, um, whether you choose to drink the baby blood or not, you think you've passed the test. <laughs> oh my God. I, I chose something horrific, but you think that you've passed the test. But um, you get two different sets of experiences at that point. It's a very Masonic sort of structuring. Um, so I think something sort of happens there.
0: It seems like something that's common in any of these sacred societies that people like to and to you know discuss in the context of their influence on on the world today. Um, that there's you know the the lowered I guess to use Masonic terminology like these degrees of initiation, these different um, uh, these lower levels, and it's uh, a lot of the uh, nasty stuff that comes out uh, from you know that that researchers like you are able to sort of pull out. Um, you know, aren't really apparent to them, these lower level. Uh, members until they they rise up in the ranks that seems like something that's uh, relatively common among these uh, organizations and it's probably a structure that uh, ensures uh, their success I, w- I would assume
1: I think so too yeah I mean secrecy is, is part of the game
0: well you also have members where people can be like well they can't all be bad right so like people that look at, I guess, the Fabian society and are like, oh, so you're saying everyone in the Labour Party is a eugenicist, you know, that you, you, you can use sort of reductionist uh, arguments uh, to sort of give yourself uh, an additional layer of, of cover, maybe And the same with, you know, Masons and, you
1: know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. People oversimplify to the point of stupidity and they, they miss the nuance. They miss the richness of actually how history happens by doing that. Yeah. Um, on both extremes, right—the whole "I don't believe in any conspiracy" side of things, or everything is a conspiracy side of things, like, uh-huh. like club burden. You know, both sides—you miss—you miss all the drama. Um, but uh, like, yeah, like these guys. Like, and I'll—I'll I'll get back to Lord Milner quitting his job. But like, the thing about these guys—they profess themselves to be like socialists, and they—they they utilize certain Marxist terminology and stuff. But they're really just—they only—they—they they disdain the masses. They disdain labor. They actually are just using it as sort of like an attractive honey to attract people who are being abused in unjust economic systems um to conglomerate and weaponize thus a groupthink, right, and utilize the masses um, in ways that really just justify a restructuring of the society with no benefit to the masses whatsoever. They ultimately want to create a system where there is a, a destruction of the means of supporting our population. That's why what we see occurring right now, just as a quick side note to Europe. Um, there is an intentional destruction of the means of accessing viable energy sources today, which are needed to support life. Um, you know, so-called dirty fossil fuels because we have to decarbonize or getting shutting down all of the nuclear power in Europe, which they're obsessed around. Um, This has been a fight for like 40 years to shut down all nuclear science. Because and get everybody reliant on windmills and solar panels. Because if you can get people dumb enough to think that windmills and solar panels can support 8 billion lives, then uh, you've created a bunch of sheep that will wa- willingly walk into the slaughterhouse. Like you cannot support industrial civilization in its current form in any way that way. Um, so, what they're doing by like everything that they're doing right now, including also the destruction of means of producing food, um, it's calculated yeah. to get effect. It's not like an accident, it's like that's the intention. is you know, and we're just so cut off mentally from understanding what is the science of there's a science of supporting human life. It's accessible to everybody, but we're not taught that we're taught instead these reductionist mathematical theories of thinking that you can measure quality of energy by calories or wattage, you know, because like one mathematically one gigawatt of of windmill energy in a giant wind farm is mathematically equivalent to one gigawatt of energy from like uh, a third or fourth generation nuclear power plant um, occupying like a square block radius. Uh, but the quality of the energy is in no way the same. It's just the mathematical quantitative similarity. But qualitatively, you cannot like melt industrial steel. You cannot make a windmill with windmill power. You know, like it's just it's different qualities of energy. So people have been lost. They've they've been cut off from the, the ability to think about quality first and quantity second in the dance. And they've put instead quantity mathematics as in the primary position, which was really at the heart of the battle over science. And this is what the why the Darwinians um, or the that's why they liked the Darwinian approach um, of gradualism, because there was a sort of idea that when the Fabians adopted this idea of gradualism, instead of these 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 leaps, these these discrete nonlinear leaps that do happen in nature, that happens in evolutionary. Uh, data like we don't see examples of gradualism in, in the evolutionary uh, fossil records. We just see like whole systems disappearing, and new systems upgrading, with these discontinuous leaps. We see the same thing in human economies too, where, where a new idea like the discovery of electricity wasn't a gradual uh, refinement of the use of candle makers making better candles for for you know lighting, and then all of a sudden electricity happened. Gradually, it doesn't happen that way. There is this creative leap. And it's this power that the human mind has that these guys have been, I think they've been really afraid of. They've been trying to obscure and destroy our ability to, to, be, to access these creative Eurekas by saying that, no, discovery, the, they're trying to say that science is just randomness on the one hand. Like in, in the Darwinian system, one of the key assumptions is that um, the, the causal mechanism is random mutations on the very small that are just like rolling of the dice. And every once in a while you get lucky and it gives you a bigger claw that allows you to like eat out or beat your the weaker uh, opponents in your in your ecosystem for uh, in the race uh, for diminishing returns of resources Um, or like, a you know, whatever, bigger, colorful feathers to uh, have sex and propagate your genetic stock, you know, or whatever. But it's all just a random, a random function. Mm -hmm. And then there's this gradualism that everything just slowly changes and adapts, but no creative leaps. Um, so all that to say, both sides uh really advanced and there were other opposing views, just to say quickly. Um at the at the late 19th century, it wasn't just the Bible or Darwin. There were many other scientists all over the world, like James Dwight Dana, the great American biologist, uh Carl Ernst von Bayer, QVA. There are so many biologists who are looking at the processes of evolution. And actually, looking at questions of par- harmony, purpose, directionality, uh, improvement, uh, whether things are like getting moving in a in a certain qualitative direction of better or worse, like all of these things, how the parts all fit in in a body or in an ecosystem together, um, in a harmonious rhythm. These were all ideas that were bearing a lot of good scientific fruit, and that was all crushed by this oversimplification that that uh, it, Thomas Huxley arranged with his X club which was sort of the first think tank in 1865 that was designed to just sort of promote Darwinism and synthesize all of the different branches of knowledge. So you had different representatives from different schools of math and astronomy and science and sociology, and they were all parts of this X club but T.H. But Huxley was basically saying, okay, he arranged all of these debates between radical fundamentalist Anglican priests and himself usually. And he would just destroy them. And he got everybody in the papers and the newspapers and media um, to basically get across this fake idea that you have to be either one extreme, a a total Darwinist and be scientific um, or be a radical fundy fundy Anglican who believes that the Bible is literally true. And there's no middle ground. There's no other choice. And people too many people fell for that, that false dichotomy. Um, But that was the value. Um, So all that to say, (laughs) I was going off topic. But the Fabian Society, um, they were working closely. So when Mackinder quit his job as director of the London School of Economics, he was he did so based on the job offer he got from Lord Alfred Milner, the head of the the Rhodes Trust and the Round Table, which had basically a series of think tanks that they created all over the Commonwealth, and the idea was to create a to restructure the British Empire, which was failing, and to create a new British Empire in the twentieth century. Around an either an imperial federation or what later became the League of Nations, which he was the guy who managed that. So he quit his job at the London School of Economics and he went to Canada uh, on the dime of the Rhodes Trust. And both Milner and and Mackinder were here in Canada for a couple of years trying to figure out how do they keep control of the British colony of the Americas because all of the other American uh, nations had rejected hereditary structures when they became republics. And, you know, it was never a a finished product, but Canada is the only monarchy of the Americas. And it was an important strategic beachhead by the British, highly prized possession because it was strategically located between the Russians and the Americans. So on the one hand, it gave like Canada's played a very negative role. This might surprise Americans maybe who are listening to this. And maybe maybe Canadians might be surprised, too. I I would imagine they they would be. Um, Canada's been a beachhead. Of United Empire loyalists with an inner encrusted deep state embedded into our own constitu- constitution from 1867, which was the thing that created can- uh, Canada's confederation. And it was done around a privy council office, a privy council, a governor general, lieutenant governors. So these are the actual heads of state. It's not the prime minister. It's the governor general. That's the head of state. All acts in parliament have to be made pass royal assent by the monarch. Or her her representative in each province. It's a governor. It's a lieutenant governor uh, who's appointed to represent the crown. Um, It's embedded that way, and it always has been. Now, many of the worst acts committed by the British to undermine and destroy the rebellious colony um, that went that declared independence in in seventeen seventy six. A lot of this was done from basing operations in Canada. For example. Uh, British Confederacy uh, Secret Intelligence had their headquarters in North America based in Montreal, uh, provided with uh, the St. Lawrence Hall, a big hall right down from where I live, um, which was where all of the key British Confederate um, intelligence operators were based, again, with the support of the British. Um, uh, John Wilkes Booth was up here for five weeks where he received his orders and money by the head of the uh, the Bank of Ontario, who later became the mayor of Montreal as a reward for, for good deeds to the empire in 1865. But he was given a, a check. Um, this was found in his hotel room when he killed Lincoln. Um, the killing of Kennedy, you know, I mean, there's been um, amazing work done by Jim Garrison, the former uh, district attorney of New Orleans, who had published On the Trail of the Assassins. And it sort of encapsulates 30 years of his own research into what was the, the real hand behind the killing of JFK. And this is the guy who uh, Kevin Costner played in the Oliver Stone movie. But it was a real character and his book is, is very real. And he demonstrates concisely that Permandex, run by Louis Mortimer Bloomfield, um, mm-hmm. based in Montreal, was be- behind coordinating closely with the CIA and, and the British. Uh, the murders of JFK, also uh, two attempts on de Gaulle's life. So there's a lot. There's a lot. And so I'm saying all of this just to get people to appreciate that the British didn't want to lose control of Canada because at that time in the late 19th century, there were a lot of Republican, independently minded people gaining positions of prominence in Canada. I won't go through their names, but they're in my books. And uh, they basically wanted to take the opportunity of the U.S. defeat of the the British funded Confederacy because the British were also providing kind of like the U.S. supplies logistics to uh, ISIS, mercen- ISIS mercenaries in Syria, right? Or Iraq. Um, that's kind of what the British were doing with the the slaveocracy in the South was they were providing weapons, battleships, money, intelligence to help them effectuate the war. And even there was a point where the British nearly um, joined militarily openly the Confederates' cause to break up the Union. Um, but the thing that stopped them, and they were working with the French, with Napoleon Third was that Russia, Russia directly intervened, right? And Russia, under Tsar Alexander II, uh, deployed the Russian Navy to the coasts of the USA in New York and off the coast of San Francisco. And it was a direct message to the British and to the French that if you do enter the war, it's going to be a casus belli with Russia. So stay the hell away. And that kept them at bay and gave Lincoln with, you know, Lincoln had some good advisors economically who uh, educated him on the greenbacks and the emission of state credit through greenbacks that were not controlled by private financiers to build infrastructure and execute the war. So he had, he had some, some serious international and national support. Um, and that tipped the scales in favor of him. So Canada at the time, these nationalists um, who had, uh, like I said, gained a lot of political influence, like Isaac Buchanan was a big player. um, their figures in Quebec. They wanted it to, to basically have an independent, non-hereditary system of Canada. Some of them wanted at the time to join the USA. Other, others wanted to have a true republic. But the point is none of them wanted to be a tool of the empire anymore. And that was scary to the empire, again, because look at the debates at the time. There was serious discussion to continue Lincoln's transcontinental railway that liberated the U.S. from British maritime controls of the of the oceans, which is how the British were able to, to as a small island, to keep control of the global, global commerce, was getting everybody dependent on uh, sea trade, right? So all of a sudden, when Lincoln finished the transcontinental railway, all of a sudden, the U.S. as a nation was no longer dependent upon British shipping and they could develop internally and industrially. And that idea was going to extend through British Columbia and Canada. It wasn't Canada yet. And into Alaska, which had just been sold by the Russians to the Americans to the survive. Uh, uh, William Seward, the secretary of state who had survived his own assassination attempt the night Lincoln was killed. People forget about his secretary of state who got like Something like 18 stab wounds. <laughs> and he survived. They're, they're oh, made that's of tough.
0: Okay, wow. He's uh, a tough motherfucker, for <laughs> uh, yeah, lack of a, a better word? Wow. word. wow, I mean, he survived yeah. 18 stabs. That's that's impressive.
1: Maybe even more than 20. But he was, yeah, like he was, he was, the thing that saved him was that he had already, I think somebody had tried to kill him a week earlier by pushing him in front of a carriage that ran over him. And his whole body was in casts with like metal girdings. And uh, the the assassin who came into his room to stab him couldn't get any of the essential arteries because of the metal girdings. And finally, William Seward's son heard the, the 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 scuffle, and came in and fought the uh, the assassin off. <laughs> but this guy reco- goes right back to work, and he's the guy who initiates with um, his counterparts in Russia the purchase of Alaska. And the idea was always to extend the rail and telegraph lines through uh, Alaska through the Arctic into Eurasia with. There were broad programs for building the Trans-Siberian Railway with the help of American engineers um, that was going to connect into China with the uh, Russo-China Railway. Um, so many things, and the idea was that it was all going to be funded by national banks, national credit, kind of like what what Lincoln had done with his 520 bonds or his greenbacks. That was the that was all a buzz in national circles all over the world, including in Germany, Otto von Bismarck. Sedi uh, Carnot's networks in France, who was also assassinated in 19, 1895 by anarchists run by Britain, um, all over Russia. I mean, Alexander II and III were, I mean, look at the people who were advising them. They were all part of the same international network in the Jap- Japan Meiji Restoration as well. You had a big fight over uh, bringing national banking in with, with the help of these Lincoln networks. So it, it was a global. In Argentina, you had the, the Drago plan, the Argentinian foreign minister as well, to adopt the the Lincoln policy for Argentina so is globally a real big point of of fear for the british aristocracy and oligarchy who were just seeing all of the the core mechanisms they needed to keep their system in place disappear with national governments going for full spectrum industrial economies right where they could stand on their own two feet and not be reliant or dependent on a supranational private financier class or or ocean trade um, and upon that basis, you could have like fair trade amongst nations based on you know parity, like because we can all support our people, so we're not gonna just have like cash cropping where one country just just does you know I don't know cotton and the other country just does shoes or I don't know you know like the way the globalizations wired. Um, so this is where okay back to McIntyre. Mac- so MacIntyre is brought in. He comes to Canada with Milner, and they they set up a battle plan. To keep Canada as a wedge controlled by the British between the US and Russia, and that danger of a Russia US friendship. And um, the way that Mackinder, um, well, he, he lays out a whole battle plan, and that's uh, in chapter one of my, or chapter one of volume two of my Clash of the Two Americas. Uh, Milner comes up with a plan. And he says, okay, of these three scenarios, and I've got, I'm paraphrasing his direct words. He's like, of the three scenarios for the future, the greatest threat to the empire is greater U.S.-Canada relations, which at the time, I think in early 1900s, the USA was very different from the USA we have today. So at the time, when you had our prime minister then was Wilfred Laurier, he was a Republican. He loved Lincoln. And he finally became prime minister of Canada. And he fought against the British on a variety of things. Um, also, he was trying to stay alive. It was the age of assassinations too, right? It was not easy to be. Um, an independently-minded thinker and stay alive if you had political power. So he had to to navigate through some crazy Byzantine shit. Um, But (laughs) nonetheless, he finally got his bill to uh, have what's called the Zolver, or a Customs Union of North America with a protective tariff around Canada and the United States, and industrial growth with um, large-scale productive state credit emissions internally within the continent, um, which was very again very different from nafta because people hear that on the surface and they're like ah that's like nafta that that that's a corporate takeover and it's no it's a very different thing it was based on sovereign nation states cooperating together based on a large scale uh, growth pro- program nafta did the opposite it destroyed our our industry it destroyed our manufacturing it did the opposite and anyway so um what milner said okay that's the greatest threat is closer us canada integration um at the time The the best scenario is greater U.S., uh, greater British Canada uh, integration around a world government, uh, which was the roundtable sort of idea of a world federation. But that's not likely going to happen, he says, because there's too many nationalists in Canada who are still resisting. Um, And he said the, the middle ground, the happy middle ground is the promotion of a synthetic Canadian nationalism, because he says, you know, like the Canadians are woefully, he says, Woefully ignorant, uh, uh, no, sorry, happily ignorant, (laughs) happily ignorant to the longer waves of history, and this is one of the best qualities of the Canadians because they don't know and they think they know, Uh, and they're bumptiously superior. They have a feeling of bumptious superiority to the Americans, and we can use that to inflame a sense of Canadian nationalism that is in in harmony with British interests, and that's what became the, the next 110 years of British policy in Canada was creating a false Canadian nationalism without a British British flag, which is what we had back then. And, you know, like a Canadian, a Canadian flag with a big maple leaf that didn't mean anything. Um, And, you know, but but one of the other things is that he arranges the ouster of Wilfrid Laurier. So in 1911, just as this bill is is passed in the House of Commons and the Senate to be made law at the same week that it's about to be made law, this customs union, Wilfrid Laurier is ousted in a. Orchestrated coup that's that's run by and I've I've got a paper that I that's on my website uh, documenting this thoroughly is the Roundtable movement that had their headquarters in Ontario, uh, the the Orange Men something like one out of three males above the age of twenty in Ontario in the day were Masonic Orange Men part of the Orange Anglican Order affiliated to the the monarchy, and uh, some networks of traders in Quebec around Borassa a guy named Henri Boressa, fake nationalist, so. Wilfrid Laurier is quickly ousted. He loses power and he writes to his collaborator, Odie Skelton, who's another nationalist, a really good guy who dies in a mysterious car accident when he's keep, when he's doing battle with a lot of these road Scholars in 1940, trying to keep Canada out of the, the British war. Um, but Odie Skelton, he, he writes a, a book where he, he describes the letter that Wilfrid Laurier sent to him, where Laurier says in 1914, Canada is now run. By a group in London called the Roundtable that controls both the Liberals and the Conservatives, uh, we've we've been taken over. And this Roundtable movement at the time in Britain, they are working on their own coup d'état to take control because the Fabian Labour Party has their guy Herbert Asquith, um, who's a little soft in in pr- the presidential or the prime ministerial position. Now, they have just orchestrated a war using a whole set of secret alliance, military alliances. I'm sure a lot of people have, have read about this, but the World War I was an orchestrated war. It did not have to happen. There's no reason why World War I happened except for these back-channel British military alliances um, and also a series of assassinations um, that unleashed a series of unfortunate uh, consequences that resulted in you know what was formerly a skirmish between this you know Serbia and, and Austria uh it became very quickly all of these military alliances were activated where all of a sudden the world was pulled into a meat grinder for four years so Herbert Asquith was not the man for the job they milliner thought and he the he worked to create a, what's called a very British coup there's a, a paper a wonderful extensive paper if people just type in uh, a very British coup in Google. I think they'll still get it, Lord Milner. And he, he basically ousts uh, Asquith and takes control with his whole coterie of Leo Amory and all of these other guys who also worked with the Fabians in the Coefficients club. Like I mentioned, it's, it's not different things. People treat them like they're different, but they're not. And they then wanted to create the terms of the Versailles Treaty, the post-World War I terms um, to shape the New World Order. Which became out of Versailles was the League of Nations was created. The uh, British Chatham House, the the what's called the Royal Institute for International mm-hmm. Affairs, uh, that was created in 1919, um, and also the the unpayable debt debt payments that were designed specifically to break Germany completely, create hyperinflation, which has a lot of parallels in many ways to what's happening today, and then use uh, the effects of chaos of hyperinflation to create a new type of currency with a new type of fascist governance so people basically had to you know at a certain point in 23 uh germans had to bring in their wheelbarrows full of Reichsmarks, you know because it, it cost you everyone became a billionaire and people were like burning money to stay warm and it it lost all value so people were told okay just bring in your wheelbarrows of money we'll give you a new type of currency called a rent-in mark and it will be Tied to new rules that involve breaking unions, uh, yeah, destroying unions, getting rid of uh, government jobs, uh, all sorts of things that, were, that would only be accepted under fascist imposition. Democratically, people wouldn't accept that. And the guy who wrote that was an associate of the Bank of England's Montague Norman, who ran the Bank of England for like 25 years. And his name was Hjalmar Schacht. Hjalmar Schacht was, became Hitler's finance minister. And he was the guy who invented the, the Renton Marx so-called solution to the, uh, the controlled crisis. He was also a member with Mussolini of an organization called the Pan-Fascist, or the Pan-European Movement, the Pan-European Union in 1922, as a way to promote a benign feudalism onto the world. That's literally what they wanted. Um, Count Colour- benign
0: feudalism. What do you mean by that?
1: I don't know what they mean by it. I I, I think
0: (laughs) that that's their Uh, term then.
1: That's their term. I didn't Okay. Yeah. Well, I think everyone
0: that wants to impose feudalism or neo feudalism today, um, if as long as they're not like the (laughs) peasant class and they're the elite class, uh, I'm sure they see it as benign.
1: Yeah. If you're <laughs> if you're part of the parasites, then yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> if you're the ones getting getting the actually suffering from the cancer, then you don't see it as benign if you're gonna yeah. <laughs> no, exactly.
0: I think it's an um, issue of perspective anyway. Go on. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're
1: right. Absolutely. And it's never, I mean, these guys, like I said, it, it's like for them when they talk about socialism, they're and and like state control of all assets, which is what the Fabian Society was designed to do, was move was to basically, you know create a state control and then a redistribution of all wealth of all assets, all private property around an idea of justice. It attracts a lot of poor people who have never had much and have been abused. And the reality is those who are promoting that policy, they, don't, they just want to create feudalism. They don't, they don't for them, the word when they say the word socialism, when Bertrand Russell says that he's actually saying feudalism, you'll all be equal, but you'll all be equally either poor or dead. Um, and that's sort of like, yeah, what these guys kind of want. And and so Hjalmar Schock, that was the whole thing um, that he was a part of. People like Otto von Habsburg ran this thing for like 40 years, the the pan-European movement. Um, in fact, he created another organization called uh, the Dignitat Humanity Humani Institute with a whole bunch of other black nobility, upper level uh, figures run out of an old creepy monastery, 800 years old. And the head of this organization is none other than, uh, I'll just say it, I mean, uh, Steve Bannon—that's <laughs> who they brought in to to run this thing—to <laughs> unite the the movements of the right. It's it's super weird when you go to their website. um But yeah, it's basically to repackage Clash of Civilizations for a alt right sort of audience. Um, <laughs> anyway, it gets weird. But all that to say, so that that's what the Roundtable Movement wanted to do in controlling the terms of the post World War One age, and. The League of Nations was always done with a collective security pact that they embedded. So people like uh, Lloyd George, who was uh, part of the roundtable, he was prime minister. Uh, Milner was the controller of all foreign policy. Leo Amory was in there. Um, anyway, it was, it was a roundtable run uh, government. What uh, they wanted was this Article 10. That was a key thing of of the League of Nations, of a collective security pact, kind of like what they did for NATO in 1949 later on with with article five that's the world that's the the world war three clause basically any if any member gets in a skirmish just or unjust right. everyone is obliged to enter into the fight um so also it called for getting rid of nation states having any influence over their their military or economy so it was really another just a cover for world government um bertrand russell who's a, a known pacifist um or that's how he celebrated um he actually wrote saying that you know he he supports his ideal is uh, is global anarchism as a global philosophy to get rid of nation states because these guys are all wanting to get rid of the sovereign nation state institution forever. That's the that's the main goal is destroy that. But at the same time, as as Bertrand Russell says, yeah, like the anarchy of, of Prince uh, Kropotkin is like the ideal. Um, what we really want to get people to is the League of Nations. As again, this is where you get into this like benign sort of. Uh, <laughs> feudalism right the thing that maintains the order of the system of local chaos local mini control is this global system of uh, structure of of the world government and even frederick von hayek uh who's a big austrian school you know libertarian known for um protecting individual liberty and freedom in the end of his uh, road to serfdom even says we need to have a world government police to guarantee make sure that all of the the local regions of the world all played by the same rules of the the game, so it's like there's something fishy going on regarding how these guys are talking about local freedom or personal liberty and stuff. There's 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 a sleight of hand happening here. Um, Bertrand Russell again, Fabian Society, uh, high level Fabian Society figure. So you know this doesn't work because at the time in the 20s, in in the United States, even in Canada. You have the Laurier. Laurier is dead, the prime minister who was ousted, but his Laurier liberals, his whole team ends up coming back into power and they fight off in every single uh, League of Nations conference. They're uh, they're battling with these imperialists saying, no, we don't want to give up Canadian independence. You have the Irish Free State of Michael Collins and that group as well. Uh, They're part of the Commonwealth uh, Federation uh, conferences, and they're fighting again for their right to, uh, to have national Uh, independence from this global empire way of thinking. And you also had an American, the United States. You had uh, Warren Harding, who was the president, um, sort of the last, I I guess you could call him Lincoln Republican, who had died by oyster poisoning on his way back from Alaska in 1823 or 1824. I forget. But anyway, he died under very mysterious circumstances. But he was also a big part of the nationalist currents in the U.S., from both parties, um, who were all fighting against this world government idea. And there was a better understanding of the wall street fifth column penetrations by Britain that had been embedded since really 1776. There had always been these, uh, this deep state fifth column that had never left after 1776, but reconfigured themselves within the U S the heart of the U S itself, just like they did in Canada. And so there was a better understanding and people fought against that and pulled the U S out of a lot of the agreements that, you know, they need, the U.S. was a big player even then, and they needed to have the U.S. on board for this to work. Um, so even though Warren Harding died and there was something like 300 uh, German statesmen who also were assassinated by uh, mostly London-directed anarchist cells um, of terrorists in between 1921 and 1924, um, a lot of Russian statesmen had died before the Bolshevik Revolution as well. Funded again by... <laughs> Alfred Milner, Jacob Schiff, Max Varberg from 1905 all the way to 1917. You had tons of London Wall Street money, including, like I said, $20 million from Lord Milner put into um, the different Trotsky, uh, Bakunin, um, Jabotinsky camps of anarchists, starting in 1905 to disrupt the nationalist movements of, of Russia that we're still trying to keep alive the fires of industrial development and progress that had been adopted after, uh, Lincoln's victory in the civil war. Um, so there, there's this whole network that ran a color revolution. It didn't anyway. So it's the same network though. You find the round table hand, the Fabian hand all over the place. And, uh, and so that didn't work then coming through the, uh, you know, again, I'm Canadian. So the, the actual legitimate nationalist Canadians were continuously fighting against this thing and. The Fabian Society of Canada was created in, the, in 1931 as a think tank first, uh, as a way to solve the Great Depression. And, you know, that's something which I read about a little bit in that, in that paper that uh, you published on Unlimited Hangout on uh, like father, like son, uh, two generations of uh, dictators in, in Canada. Um, but the, this Fabian Society think tank, the idea was, look, the, Brit- the, the Great Depression was devastating people's lives. There was a lot of ignorance, fear for the future, and in that type of uh, climate, people are ripe to support things they would never support if things were stable and they had security and and knowledge and and confidence. So there is a tendency of like blaming blaming others, blaming other races for all of your problems, blaming blaming other uh, you know the idea of look look at all the money we're spending on keeping poor people uh, you know housed. Or, or 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 keeping keeping mentally defective people in an institution it's so expensive when your average um you know white anglo-saxon family is starving and they're not feeding their families because there's no jobs isn't it wrong that our government state money or taxpayer money is going to keep people alive who are not worthy of life and so eugenics funded always by as as the science the the sort of Social application of a lot of the Darwinian mechanisms of the uh, the the you know the the survival of the fittest, but to uh, human terms, um, that that's fake science. Was really becoming popular, and again, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Macy Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, many mm-hmm. other um, Anglo-American intelligence operations masquerading as think ta- as as foundations were funding this fake science including the science in germany um which was a little bit more enthusiastic to adopt it but it was still being adopted by 32 american states yeah was adopted sterilization and eugenics policies canada had alberta bc by 1933 sterilizing over ten thousand people um, who were not deemed morally fit to keep alive
0: yeah i mean there was Um, even that supreme court decision in the u.s where i forget i guess it was the head justice at the time i forget his name basically said like three generations of imbeciles is enough and ordered, uh, you know, three generations of the same family, the women to be sterilized. I mean, a lot of people forget that. Um, anyway, um, and, you know, in the interest of time, uh, we we could definitely, I could definitely have you talk, I guess, for, uh, a couple hours then, you know, tracing this all the way from, from where, uh, you have taken us, you know, to, uh, the present, but let's, uh, jump ahead for a little bit.
1: Before we jump ahead. Just one punchline. So this Canadian Fabian Society here's here's the punchline uh, was set up by five uh, Rhodes Scholars, um, all all pushing eugenics, and they created a um, they created a political party called the Commonwealth uh, Cooperative Commonwealth Federation as a political branch, which um, became relabeled in 1960 as the National uh, Democratic Party, the NDP, and people met leading members of it. Like Pierre Elliott Trudeau um, and all of his uh, London School of Economics Fabians, who were embedded in the Privy Council Office in the 1950s, and were all who were all basically first assigned to destroy any remnants of of Christianity in Quebec, which was a, a Christian base of operations, which was pushing back heavy against eugenics, as well as the teaching of Darwinism as an absolute uh, fact in schools. The idea was to. Destroy and uh, dismantle any type of Christian influence in Quebec, which is what his main assignment was, and what he did very well. And I write about that in the book, and also a bit in that paper that's on Unlimited Hangout. And that entire network basically retooled themselves over a, a when when the the surviving nationalists uh, died off, like C.D. Howe and many of the the Quebec uh, liberals or the Canadian liberals when they were ousted. Um, they basically like a virus took over a host cell because they couldn't get political power as the the orange NDP, and they basically permeated the, the, the Liberal Party. And that's where you had the creation coming out of 1963 of a new national anthem, a new Canadian flag, and a new idea of Canada as something not British and somehow independent, where Pierre Elliott Trudeau was propelled to become quickly prime minister um, under a selection committee run by Maurice Strong um, who was then controlling Power Corporation, which is the the biggest sort of the monopoly on on electricity in Quebec? Um, it was a Rockefeller operation in many ways. So he was a selection committee that selected Pierre Elliott Trudeau, made him prime minister, and uh, and if you look at it from that standpoint, the entire technocratic regime change was sort of a a, a, a technocratic cybernetics revolution in 1960 in Quebec. And then in 1968 to 72, on the federal level, was effect, uh, affected by these Fabians masquerading as liberals in Canada, um, and a big part of that utilized the uh, execution of martial law in uh, Canada, as people know in Quebec, there were, there were tanks on the streets for a month under the October crisis, and it was the the previous period before Justin Trudeau utilized the Emergency Act that it was used, where the remnants of opposition to this type of technocratic regime change, this overhaul of governance, was completely destroyed. The, the Deputy Prime Minister of Quebec was, was executed in that operation, which, as I go through in that paper on your site, was run by the RCMP or a division within the RCMP Special Operations, um, which has tied itself to British intelligence. And the whole thing, from the FLQ terrorist bombings throughout the 60s, um, all of the cells of these terrorists, evidence has come out irrefutably proving that these were controlled by Anglo-Canadian intelligence from the get-go. Trudeau I was always in on it. Um, and the idea you know, was always to just justify the, um, the transition of a type of society centered around um, material growth, the development, the, the, the development of the, the capacity of people to be better, to have a better life for their kids, than their, their grandparents did. That was always the ethic of society and to liberate human beings from empire. That was changed to a save nature, save ecosystems from humanity. And humanity became increasingly defined as a, a virus or a, a cancer on Gaia, on this nat- natural, pure equilibrium thing. And so this is where we get the founding of things like the World Economic Forum, which was co-founded by, by mm-hmm. Maurice Strong, the Canadian oligarch. Um, who also co-founded the first United Nations conference on population and the environment in 1972. He's the guy who created sort of the foundation or the the structure. At least he's the figurehead. He's kind of like a Cecil Rhodes character. He's not a causal nexus unto himself, but he's or like a George Soros character. You, you know that, that that type, right? Upper level management, but ultimately kind of disposable. They're sociopathic and they do a job well, so they're used as mercenaries. And if they're if they want to have kids, their kids are guaranteed. Sort of, you know. Um, a hereditary mercenary set of benefits like the Bronfman dynasty or something. Um, so that's what Maury Strong was. He didn't want to have kids for obvious reasons, um, but that's another thing. <laughs> but uh, so these guys, they, he puts out a plan to get rid of nation states in a more virulent way by saying we're going to have an NGO complex instead of trying to solve the big problems of the world the way people like Martin Luther King Jr. were talking about with um his call to conscience in 1968 and his battle plan for ending imperialism in the Vietnam War, or Bobby Kennedy uh, when he was running for office in 68. He had a whole program to really get rid of, of slavery and economic slavery as well as hunger, all of this stuff, by building big industrial projects for Africa, um, get ri- getting rid of the power of the CIA within the military and all sorts of things. So instead of thinking about big, pro- big solutions, let's instead have NGOs litter the, litter the landscape offering little micro solutions to like you know pay money to build a well um like give people small little things that diffuse their energy while the actual controllers who are part of the coterie he's setting up with the the davos crowd right under klaus schwab his student who's also a student of henry kissinger by the way Mm -hmm. henry Kissinger being a student of william yandel elliott um as you know uh, who's the, the roundtable uh, controller in Harvard. He's a Rhodes Scholar himself, Yandel Elliott. And, um, and Henry Kissinger is also part of this nexus of young sociopathic boys, kind of like a, a, a Milner's kindergarten. But in this case, you'd call it Yandel Elliott's kindergarten. Here, Elliott Trudeau is also a student of William Yandel Elliott in Harvard, too, before he's he sent off to, uh, to the London School of Economics. So, you know, like all of this stuff is a recapturing, a destruction of any legitimate currents of U.S. Republican constitutional nationalism that were being reflected by, by assassinated American presidents, of which there were eight who died while in office, the last being JFK. But then again, his brother was, I think, a factor. He was going to become president, guaranteed. And the yeah. replacement of uh, the recolonization of the USA by this supranational oligarchical clique of feudalists. That's that's sort of what happened.
0: Right. Wow. Brilliant summary Uh, you took us through. I I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. An abridged version of uh, the untold history of the past like 200 years or so. That was pretty cool. (laughs) Um, So I I guess uh, since we started uh, and and you sort of mentioned a bit about, uh, you know, I sort of uh, in the intro mentioned the World Economic Forum, uh, Young Global Leader Program in the introduction, you sort of mentioned uh, the World Economic Forum here. Um, It sort of seems that, uh, you know, the WEF and some of these other organizations as well, uh, seem uh, in some ways to sort of uh, uh, to be carrying the torch, I guess you could say, from the Fabian Society um, in, in the past. Uh, would you agree with that assessment?
1: 100 percent. Yeah, it's the exact same model. The, the Fabian Society and the, and the, the roundtable movement with their Rhodes Scholarship Program created a sort of model which has been replicated on um, other levels. There's, there's other scholarship programs there's, there's a Massey scholarship fund. There, there's all these things that sort of utilize the same model. And, and definitely, um, I would say you're totally right. The World Economic Forum Young Leaders Program is very similar as an indoctrination process of taking humans or people who had human potentials, turning them more Borg-like, um, <laughs> and then reinstating them back into positions of influence in their, uh, their local regions. That
0: well, I think it's also a way to sort of... Uh, not just sort of brainwash these people, but sort of like uh, buy them in a sense and be like, if you uh, follow what you learn here, you will go far in life, i.e. you will uh, be allowed to uh, advance uh, undeterred in our, our controlled system. Um, something like that. Right. Uh, I do want to say, though, that, you know, a lot of the focus is on the Young Global Leaders program currently in independent media. Uh, but there's a lot of other programs like like you've talked about today um, that sort of have the same role. And really, you know, a lot of these, quote unquote, philanthropists, uh, I don't know, like Michael Milken has sort of his own scholarship program uh, Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone Capital has his own that's based in China specifically and focus sort of mm. on this uh, transnational um, mm. uh, network that he in which he moves a lot between China and the US specifically. And, and you, I think there's a lot of different ones for that's I, I guess over time have sort of taken on more specialized roles within the I guess global oligarchy.
1: George Soros has one called the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Uh, that was created in 2007. And the uh, the former head, Jim Basile, who is the head of, of basically the Canadian Chatham House at the time, the Canadian Institute for International Affairs, or the CIC. It's now been renamed the Canadian International Council. They do all these. Anyway, it's it's a liberal think tank, but it's it's essentially the the Chatham House of Canada. Uh, the, the U.S. version is, by the way, I didn't mention this, but the U.S. version is what Hillary Clinton calls the mothership uh, the council on foreign relations. <laughs> that <mothership>. was, yeah. <laughs> um, but that, that was set up in 1921 to, they couldn't call it the American Institute for international affairs because I guess it would sound a little bit too, obviously, uh, part of the, the Rhodes operation. So they yeah. just called it CFR, but it was always staffed by Fabians and roundtablers. Like even today, Richard Haas, who's the president of the CFR mm-hmm. is himself a Rhodes scholar, um, violently. And, um, so that that was the British penetration in the U.S. But yeah, George Soros, his Institute on New Economic Thinking, it has scholarship programs um, and it is designed also with his Open Society Universities um, to do this pretty much same thing, to criticize the, you know, the dysfunctional neoliberal order that did that everyone can agree did tons of damage. So it's very attractive to young people who see the damage done to the world, to the ecosystems and to humanity. Over globalization's period, right from the early '70s, especially, so it's very attractive to young people who want to have a future. So it 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 gets good good kids into it um, who are creative, and the idea is to give kids the space, young people who have talent, the space to just create new economic systems. But and here's the trick: George Soros says the two the two inflexible rules that everyone has to adopt when they're creating whatever type of system they want to create, obviously it's going to have a predetermined outcome because of these two assumptions, is that individuals are fundamentally organized by irrationality. So chaos on the small, kind of like think of the Darwin random mutation mechanism on the small. And on the large, he says, uh, the need for maximum stability and the belief in entropy as the macro system. So the law of of entropy is essentially uh, a theory that that all systems whether ecosystems or human body systems or the universe, even like galaxy or like it's 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 a pretty comprehensive theory. Um, it's an assumption that they're all organized around thermodynamic equilibrium, that all systems that seem to change are all being changed in accordance with a state of no change that ultimately like a like a gas engine in your car. You put the engine in, you, you, you make the pistons run as you heat it up, right, and, and you're burning the, the fuel. That fuel is always moving towards a point of no fuel, and the gas that that engine is not going to produce more fuel, no matter what you do. <laughs> it won't redesign itself to 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 burn fuel better. It's an engine. So what these guys said is uh, is that's the rule for everything that they extrapolated to the universe. Um, even as far as justifying this uh, assumed idea of of a heat death that's going to happen supposedly at some point, you know, a few billion years or trillion—I don't know—hundreds of billions of years in the future. Um, human beings are all like that. Ecosystems are all like that. And if you believe that and against mathematics, it, it's, it's not, the universe doesn't shows us in fact that it's doing the opposite. What we see is things moving from lower orders of, of potential to higher orders based on creative directionality. That's what evidence is showing us. That's how we went from like apparently single celled amoebas to being like these complex creatures interacting over elect- electricity, you and I. You know, thousands of of miles apart, talking to each other cognitively around ideas. So to say that that was all a random function governed by no directionality and no perfectibility is insane. It's not scientific, but this is what he's saying. Everyone has to assume those two mechanisms: irrationalism on by the individual uh players in the system, and the need for total stability and entropy in the the whole. And that's where the the, the this is where the the technocratic social engineers. Can create what they say is a science of management of diminishing returns and deciding who gets what in this world that is perpetually getting smaller and smaller under a green new deal of windmills and solar panels and you know reduced uh, food production. Um, and this is why I think they're they're afraid of of what you're like there are fifth columns, you know in Russia, in china and in india. there's there's obviously deep states in or penetrating all countries of the world. There's no pure country as such. But these are countries that through their policy actions over the past, especially 20 years, I could see clearly that they don't want to sacrifice their multi thousands of year civilizations on this altar um, at this point. So they're fighting, I think, for survival. And the fact that they're not playing ball and and staying in this cage that's going to be lit on fire um, the way they, they were supposed to a decade ago is, I think, part of what is pushing this new iron curtain, this, this intention to try to provoke an excuse to erect a new total, absolute iron curtain between East and West while, you know, the oligarchy tries to consolidate their, uh, their situation, their power in the, the part of the transatlantic bubble that they want to, you know, blow up. But the, the other parts of it aren't really as, as on board as they used to be. So I think there's this, this fight right now.
0: I agree with you to an extent, but I definitely think that countries like uh, Russia and China remain very committed to uh, the fourth industrial revolution within their own countries. I think they see that uh, as being in their national interest, at least from their leadership's um, point of view, uh, as a way to sort of uh, dominate in the era to come. Uh, of artificial intelligence, things like that, uh, because they're uh, definitely very invested in those technologies and in setting the rules, sort of the, the groundwork for their uh, uh, for those uh, new technologies as they're being rolled out, uh, particularly artificial intelligence um, and things like that. And really, you know, I would argue when people talk about the Great Reset, it's sort of this effort to make everything digital and digitize everything. Um, uh essentially like all sectors of the economy and society. And I think uh Russia and China, their leadership definitely are doing that. And I think they see it as a way to sort of keep their their domestic populations under control. So I don't really see them um, I guess, as as white hats in, in that sense. I see them more as uh, you know, they're trying uh they're they're on board with that aspect of things going on, but they sort of want this multipolar world order, which I talked about in my last podcast, um, with Ian Davis, where they sort of see the different, you know, uh, countries having uh, a more equal piece of the pie, not really having a a hegemon and a regional block really being one hegemon necessarily. But ironically, you know, they're sort of a Eurasian block uh, themselves. So it's sort of, may still be uh, a a block controlled uh system but just a different i guess flavor of sorts uh you're welcome to disagree but i definitely think that that russia um you know i've done some podcasts about this recently um Have have uh, adopted some technocratic technologies or or at least major players in their power structure working to advance that right now, like in Spurbank and and some other. uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Spurbank is totally poison. Yeah, for sure. And the bank of the central bank of Russia as well is super poisonous, full of vipers. And uh, I mean, personalities who were installed really in the 90s during Perestroika, the, the big rape of Russia a lot of these figures uh, are still there as IMF-directed um, borgs. And yeah, the World Economic Forum has all sorts of assets around spare banks, controllers, um, embedded all throughout the the landscape, for sure. Um, China as well has their own thing too. Like Jack Ma as well, he's a World Economic Forum trustee, the multi, you know, the Bill Gates of China. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Alibaba I mean, guy. Mm-hmm. The Alibaba guy, yeah. I mean, the, the difference there that I see is that in terms of like uh, process orientation, in terms of like, I know that the oligarchy, one of the key um, principles or constants of the oligarchy has been uh, global population reduction. Like they're religiously committed to reducing population right. to like 1 billion, I think, or less. I mean, I think there's some dispute around computer models and some say maybe 2 billion and some say 500 million. And so they have these like false debates <laughs> around like, well, what number uh, of death? We, uh, you know, promote or promote, and um and world government uh, to enforce that as as you know Bertrand Russell promoted world government for the same reason. What I'm just seeing when I look at the processes that have been unleashed in terms of anti depopulation programs, um from especially China with with its nationally controlled banking system. It never you know there was a big fight to privatize it, but it fought back against it. Is that there has been a pulling out of like nearly a billion people from poverty over twenty years, and a tendency towards sure. like being able to like just do things that make bring people into more states of knowledge and better quality of life and life expectancy, which just runs contrary in in my thinking to the Malthusian I, uh, doctrine of make people stupider and more poor. Like the West has lost two years on average under COVID. We've lost two years on average of life expectancy than we did in 2019. Yeah. And it's going to get worse. Yeah, I,
0: I see what you're saying. But I think the Chinese are, are nationalist in that sense. But I don't think I think they can be nationalist and in, 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 from at the leadership level, but still embrace like major parts of technocracy in the Great Reset.
1: Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I, no, it is a technology. Mm-hmm. It is a technocracy in, in that level. And uh, in like AI and stuff, all of these things are there's a fight over how it's going to be used. Like, I don't think that a lot of these things are necessarily they're not saying like we're going to destroy AI as a tech. Uh, or quantum computing as a tech or something like that, but there's a fight over like globalization 2.0 as as Pepe Escobar calls it. Mm-hmm. Uh, over you know how will these things be used and will they be used to make us all enslaved under feudalism or and kill us or will it be used uh, in ways that uh, can pull us out of poverty? Um, I don't know to what degree you can do that with AI. I'm I'm not too sure, <laughs> but. Um, I think tech in general is a neutral thing. It's, it's always ideology and intention, which makes it infuses it with morality or uh, evil.
0: Yeah, I guess so. But then what about transhumanism? Right. I don't really see that as uh, benign. <laughs> yeah, a benign yeah, yeah, technologies yeah, yeah. I mean, that I mean,
1: sort I mean, of get into is, is human
0: augmentation. Cause ultimately, as you know, and as I, I'm sure a decent amount of my audience knows, you know, transhumanism is the new eugenics. I mean, that the term was coined yeah. by Julian Huxley, former head of the, british eugenic society and it's really gone uh from there and that's also a technology that i would argue i don't i personally don't see that as benign i guess some applications of ai you could argue uh that but really this you know uh brave new world uh to keep in the Huxleyan theme uh that we're entering into with a lot of these technologies i think are i think are pretty tricky um in a sense of um You know, that of them, you know, labeling them as neutral as, you know, other revolutionary technologies of of past eras. Uh, I think it gets a little uh, complicated, but I do think that the countries (laughs) like Russia and China sort of see this as an opportunity to advance their own nation. But I think it's going to be at the expense. I don't think they're going to afford the same privileges uh, of cultivating that technology uh, for other Countries' populations, they're going to focus on advancing perhaps their own uh, national population, but I don't think it's uh, necessarily going to be great for you know I don't know for example people in the U.S. I, I don't think they're you know the Chinese government is going to uh, try and give them you know AI uh, related privileges <laughs> you know I think that I, I, I think it's uh, we have to think about what that means in the context of nationalism.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. In those yeah. respective
0: countries. I don't think it's in our interest.
1: <laughs> you it, know. it is such a big philosophical issue that you're raising here. And I it's true. I, I don't believe that te- uh transhumanism could ever be I think it's it's intrinsically an ideology more than a technology, even transhumanism is is, is a belief that we can steer human evolution by a, a master class into uh, a new phase. Of existence, where we eliminate the un, the useless eaters, and we can genetically modify and and uh, transform um, human beings by integrating humanity into machinery. And it has like all this AI ideology too that that computers are ultimately going to supersede uh, humanity because they can calculate faster and are thus better. Um, keeping in mind that you know with a computer, it's like what goes in is what comes out. Like it's always defined, limited by what the program's programmers uh, input into the computer's fundamental uh, operating system. It can't, like, a, you know, a computer can learn how to play chess better by a form of computer learning, but it cannot actually create a new and better game of chess. It can't do that. So um, these guys, again, they, they don't look at human creativity as, as a fundamental principle. They, they reject it, and they, they treat it as an unnatural thing that has to be destroyed, in fact because it's a threat to their stability, their existence. Every time we're creative and we introduce a new discovery, it upsets the thermodynamic stability that this this these control freaks at the top of the technocratic priesthood, they want absolute power and control, right? They don't like uncertainty and a new discovery is something that creates resources that they didn't monopolize yet. Yeah, they so they, they, they don't to- like random variables that come out of nowhere. No, and yeah. exactly. That's why ideas and discoveries like how could a da Vinci who wasn't born from an elite family come up with all of these different inventions and discoveries in medicine and music and astronomy and architecture and engineering, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it's not permitted to have those types of individuals arise who are really just actualizing their, their natural human potential. They're not wasting time and they're, they're coming to know their, their own souls, I think, just nature as, as a being that's more than our flesh um, and doing it with a moral and conscious uh, conscience intention. So all that to say, like, I think that with, with the application of technology to human life, like there's a limited amount of things that I think are possible. Like we, you know, we could maybe overcome, uh, like paralysis, people who are paraplegic could maybe have some form of tech in their brain that could help them activate and use their, their limbs or something, you know, or maybe hereditary diseases
0: maybe but that's also the selling point these people know, transhumanists to
1: get their, their stuff through the door you know i find that the selling point has some feasibility to it but it wouldn't be transhumanism. well sure but that's why that's why it's the selling point <laughs> yeah it, but it wouldn't it wouldn't be transhumanism if you do that and you have a moral society that can utilize technology for the benefit of human beings instead of to suppress and enslave us it wouldn't be transhumanism it would still be uh like moral humanism that just makes life better it would it, it wouldn't be transhumanism as, as such So the transhumanism thing is a specific, uh, evil satanic agenda to, to bring about this ideological utopia. It has all this other baggage associated with it.
0: Yeah. But the technologies that it talks about that are human augmentation are technologies specific to, I guess, transhumanism, the merging of man with machine. Right. So I would argue those technologies aren't neutral if you come from the the position that it, it it ultimately erodes what it means to be human or as klaus schwab says what it it changes what it means to be human you know but i would say it erodes it you know i'm definitely i guess biased
1: that's that's coming from a guy like klaus schwab who doesn't he's not a human being as such like i don't think he, he ever if you ask him to define what is what does humanity mean to you he would have a really shit poor answer that would be super unsatisfying
0: well that's why he uh, he probably doesn't get asked that question for a reason
1: or yuval harari that creepy uh, oh,
0: I know. I've done a whole like two videos on him. I find him to be like king creep. Um, and I don't know. He, but he, he's really gifted in the sense that he can sort of linguistically make people think he's against something, but actually he's sort of promoting it.
1: Well, he gets that from, from like H.G. Wells. He even says that H.G. Wells was his inspiration to be what he became. And that's what H.G. Wells does.
0: Fascinating. Yeah.
1: In all of his fiction work and nonfiction work, H.G. Wells sounds like he's criticizing nuclear war and all of these like terrible things that are bad but in reality he has a super evil intention the whole time Uh, it's very sophisticated stuff
0: wow well yeah. That's a great note to end it on and talking about the, you know, how, um, the Fabians of years past continue to inform our, our future, uh, for people that aren't familiar with my work on Harari. Um, I did, uh, with Johnny Vedmore, two videos, um, called dump Davos. Um, hopefully going to be turning that into a, a continuing series, uh, in the near future. Um, but Harari's the guy that says uh, humans are no longer uh, spiritual beings. We are now hackable animals. He talks about the rise of data colonies and digital dictatorships and how wearable technology uh, is going to sort of uh, facilitate that that will cross a red line into digital dictatorships Mm. and he frames himself as being against it and then at the end he's like I think the people here at the World Economic Forum should take charge of these technologies so it doesn't fall into the wrong hands and then he goes on to say the wrong hands are the hands of the rats and he doesn't really explain who the rats are but you sort of get from the tone that it's the people who aren't at the World Economic Forum i.e. not The elite <laughs> class, like regular people, are the rats, and um, then uh, yeah. the board of trustee member of the WFA, uh, orient Gadash, um, who's uh, head of Bain and Capital, um, is like, "Oh, I agree that we can't let the rats have anything." And she literally says the rats like that, like the emphasis on it. It's just so weird how they talk. Anyway, I would recommend people go back and watch that video if they haven't already. Uh, the guy inspired by Fabian Society. Dude, uh, H.G. Wells, pretty wild. Aldous
1: Huxley too, right? Read, read. uh, if anyone's listening and you want something really, really interesting to read that gives you a lot of insight into this is uh, Brave New World Revisited by Aldous Huxley. And Aldous was also, my wife is doing, my wife, Cynthia Chung, she's also a writer for the Strategic Culture Foundation. And uh, she's just doing a series on this. It's going to become a book soon on uh, how Aldous Huxley was himself also a Fabian. I didn't even know that. He was recruited at Eton, And um, uh, yeah, he. if you read his Brave New World Revisited, it sounds like he's warning us of all of these bad things that will happen with social engineers if we're not careful. But if you look at what he's doing and what he even admits to in the Brave New World Revisited 10 years later, he's completely enthusiastically a part of that process uh, that is bringing us into this Mustafa Moan type of weird test tube baby world of alphas and gammas and soma and all like he, he loves it he, he's a, one of the godfather of the lsd culture <laughs> he recruited timothy leary
0: wild uh this is definitely one of the longer podcasts i've done in a while so i probably have to wrap it up here but thanks so much um Matthew, for your time and for sharing uh, your wealth of knowledge with my listeners. Very much appreciated. I think uh, we often forget uh, the role that history and, and this period of time you were going over still has shaped so much of our present situation. So I really um, appreciate you coming on. Can you let people know where they can follow your work and support you?
1: Most certainly. And thank you for having me on. Um, they can support my work. Um, I guess the easiest thing would be to go to Canadianpatriot.org. Uh, you could also buy my books. Easy, Easy to find there. Um, risingtidefoundation.net is a, a nonprofit i uh, co-run with my wife uh, there's weekly events uh, that we host lectures other things so there's a lot of content there and also my Substack, which is uh i'm not assuming you can know how to read that so maybe anyway you go to canadianpatriot.org is the easiest though <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right well thanks so much matthew and thanks so much to everyone listening uh, a special thank you to people who support this podcast um, and uh, who get to listen to the podcast first um, uh, for a couple days until it becomes publicly available. Um, so, if you're interested in getting uh, early access to this podcast, uh, be sure to support. We really appreciate it. But, you know, of course, uh, this becomes publicly available to everyone uh, and on all podcasting apps after the fact. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much and catch you next time.